Good morning, everyone. So as I mentioned in the previous workshop, we're changing our order slightly in our workshops. <clears throat> the third one is going to be called the message in media. We're going to be looking at the story of lineage and where we came from. We're also going to talk about the importance of media in ministry today. So more of a practical workshop. There'll be an opportunity for questions and so on during that one. This one is going to be a combination of this one and what was going to be workshop number four, which was, there's two, and we're pushing number three to number four, if that makes sense. So this one is entitled, Female Influencers, Women Who Gave All. Let's bow our heads for a word of praise. We start. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together to study and to look at the past and look at the future. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the theme for GYC is, but if not. But if not comes from Daniel chapter 3, and I, 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 I really do like this theme. Daniel chapter 3 is a story where you have three young men. And they stand before the king after they've already been told what to do. So they were told, bow down. And then they don't bow down. And then they're hauled, back in, they're hauled in front of the king, and the king says, I'll paraphrase, I know you might not have understood the instructions because you speak a foreign language, so let me make it very clear to you. When you hear the music, bow down. And they look back at the king and they say, king, we got the instructions. We're not bowing down. And they said, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us. And we believe he can. We all like that God, don't we? Amen? Then they say, but if not, we still won't worship you. That's the God. I'm not saying we don't like him, but that's the God. And that's the experience that's harder to go through. We all love the testimony. Hey, I gave my life to God and, and I went to university and, and then we had an exam and the exam was supposed to be on Sabbath and I went to see my teacher and I told him that I couldn't take this exam on Sabbath. He said there was nothing he could do, but, but then I prayed to God and guess what? I was given exemption. And we all say, praise God. But what about when the exemption doesn't happen? What about when you don't get that? What about when God doesn't deliver? What about when... God doesn't deliver you from the flames. Female influence, influencers who gave all. We're going to look at some stories of women. Women who were, some of them, given the ultimate choice between their beliefs, their convictions, and their life. What sets the heroes of history apart? When you look at, let me just, when you look at the historical, many of the historical figures that we're looking at, what sets them apart from everyone else? What sets them apart from the rest, in a sense, of society? This quotation we looked at here, I've seen further than others, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. Is that these men that we looked at in the previous presentation, and the women we're looking at in this presentation, they had something about them, and that something is this. They lived for an idea, they lived for a belief, they lived for a conviction that was bigger than life itself. So if you have the choice between your beliefs and your conviction, or the choice between preserving your breathing, I'll take my convictions. 
but I will not give up them in exchange for life. I will not give them up in exchange for life. <clears throat> the first woman I'd like to look at is a woman way back in history, Perpetua. She lived in the third century. We don't know too much about her, but her story has been recorded. She wrote as well, and she recorded some of her experiences. She was born, or she was from Carthage, the Rome of Africa, which today sits in modern day, testing America's geography knowledge. Not Morocco. Tunisia. Modern day Tunisia. She's born there, lives there. Christianity is outlawed. She was 22 years old and she was born into, sorry, not the third, yeah, well, the turn of the third century. She's 22 years old, she's born into a wealthy family. Her father was not a, what's the word? Christian. She was a Christian. And together with someone called Saturninus, Secundulus, Revocatus and Felicitas. They were preparing for baptism. I've put an asterisk mark next to Verocatus and Felicitas because they were slaves. The other two were free people. They were slaves. She was arrested for refusing to worship Roman deities and her father strongly opposed her and visited her in prison many times trying to get her to recant or change her mind. Her own father, her flesh and blood is like, Stop being a Christian, etc. Trying to get her to change her mind, but she refuses. She refuses, and they were condemned to die. She, was at, she said these, this was one of the quotes she said. She said, neither can I call myself anything else than what I am. I am a Christian. That's all I can call myself. In prison, she had a newborn child. The newborn child was taken away from her while she was nursing the child. And she had a lot of pain in prison, you know, physical pain as well. And her father took her child away from her. And there she is probably imagining that now her child is going to grow up not to be a Christian, uh, etc. Because her father was taken away from her. She wrote a diary in prison called Passion. This is how passionate, in a sense, they were. The other lady in prison, Felicitas, was pregnant. And they had some weird rule there that you couldn't die. You couldn't be martyred while you were pregnant. Because they were very humane, I guess. And so the woman who was pregnant had to have her baby first, and then they would martyr her. But she really wanted to be martyred with everyone else for strength and support and all the rest. And so they prayed in prison that she would have the baby. She was eight months pregnant at the time. They prayed in prison that she would have the baby early so that she could die with her fellow, fellow prisoners. And she had the baby two days before the scheduled execution day. On the day of the execution, they chose a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar that day. So what happened is the bear and the leopard and the wild boar would mutilate the prisoners. And then if they hadn't done their work, then the executioner would come with the sword. And so the bear and the leopard and the wild boar, they went to work. And after being brutalized by the animals, the Christian gathered together in the middle. They gave each other a kiss before they were killed with the sword. Perpetua wasn't stabbed properly. It was a, 
the executioner wasn't very well um, trained, and he didn't stab her properly. And so she actually grabbed the sword. And the picture there kind of illustrates she grabs the sword and she brings it to her neck. And in this way, they say she embraced her death as a martyr, dying with a dignity or a courage. One of the first female Christian martyrs that we have recorded in history, laying down her life for her beliefs. At the age of 22, we're here at general, you know, Generation of Youth for Christ. And, and as much as we can, as we go through the stories that we're sharing, we'll see that they were young people. She was 22. 22 when she dies. The, the next one I think we're going to look at is 27. And the next one we're looking at is 18. These aren't old women in the, in the, in the twilight years of their life. No, no, these are young women, young people. If I've seen further than others, Isaac Newton said, one of the greatest theologians we have had, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And the giants of our faith are not just the men. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and it seemed everyone else called John as well. But we have some great women that either sometimes influence those men in the case of Martin Luther, or women of their own right who were great leaders in and of themselves. The second woman I want to share with you is Anne Askew. She's not that well-known, but she's a famous English woman, and even not that well-known in England. But let me share you a little bit about her story. Why do we look at Anne Askew? In fact, sneak preview. Sneak preview. Are you familiar with lineage, those of you here? Lineage. Our next series of lineage coming out next year, hopefully. We haven't filmed it yet. We haven't got the funding for it yet either. Praise the Lord. I'm praising the Lord for the funding that's coming. Amen. <laughs> Our next series of lineage is going to be on women of the Reformation. No, actually, no. Women of Christian history. So we can go before the Reformation and after the Reformation. Because we want to tell these stories that really haven't had much. And we're going to do an episode on her. Anne Askew was the last martyr to die during the reign of King Henry VIII. Most of the martyrs happened during the time of Bloody Queen Mary, who is too three, sorry, is two monarchs after King Henry VIII. But she was the last monarch to die during the time of King Henry VIII. She is the only English noblewoman. What's a noblewoman? Yeah, the rich. There's a simple way. America don't really have these stratas of society because you're a land of freedom and equality and all the rest. Amen? Where anyone who can work hard can get rich. But in England, we have the nobility that are born that way. Their family owns land. And you've got noble families today. And their families own land for the last thousand years. And they're always rich and their kids will always be rich and it never changes. She was a noble woman. And she was the only noble woman ever to be tortured in the Tower of London. See, it, you were not supposed to torture women or noble women. Not allowed to be tortured. She was a writer and she was a woman who refused to submit to the rules of her day. She was also an able preacher. She preached a lot around London. A little bit about her life. She was born into a noble family. At the age of 15, her sister was engaged to be married to another man. And as in those days, it wasn't like love at first sight. It was arranged marriage by your families based on, your, you, you were basically um, real estate. If I marry my daughter with this person, then it will increase my, all the rest, all right? So... Her daughter, her sister dies, so her parents, at the age of 15, offer her as a substitute. What a life. She marries, though. She has two children with her husband. Her husband was a staunch Catholic. But even at this age of 15, 
she already has Protestant ideas. And why do I say that? Because her father and her parents weren't Protestant. Her husband wasn't Protestant. But even here in her late teenage years, she already has convictions separate from her parents, separate from her husband, convictions that are biblically based and that she lives by regardless of what her husband and her parents think of her convictions. She was relatively well-educated. She could read the Bible. She went to Lincoln to read at the cathedral. So, like, she couldn't have Bibles in your home in those days, but there was a Bible at the cathedral. So she would travel to Lincoln and read the Bible in the cathedral. You can still go to Lincoln Cathedral today. Although it was illegal, this is crazy, it was illegal for women to read in private. Public. I, I got it wrong. You couldn't read in public, but either way, she breaks the rules. Her husband was a staunch Catholic, and eventually her Protestant views were too much, and he throws his wife out for being Protestant. She then kind of says, okay, you've thrown me out. She demands a divorce, and she goes to the Bishop of Lincoln and says, my husband has thrown me out. Give me a divorce. The Bishop of Lincoln, who knew how powerful her husband and husband's family were, doesn't give her a divorce, so she goes down to London to try and get the Bishop of London to give her a divorce. She says, my husband's thrown me out. That I'm, I need to divorce him. She caused a stir, though, and she was interrogated before the Bishop of London, and she was released again in 1545 and brought before a jury, but no one would come forward in her defense. She was brought before several councils. This is all in her mid-20s. She's not old. She's young. She was brought before several councils again and charged with heresy with the main, you know, interestingly, what you see again and again in the 1500s is the doctrinal issue that people were fighting over and dying over was the mass. What's another word for the mass today in Adventist language? Sorry? No, no, no. Communion. The Lord's Supper. The doctrinal issue they died over was the question. Is that bread on the table the body of Christ or not? Yes or no? What's the correct answer if you want to live? Yes. The bread is the literal body of Christ. Whereas Anne says, no, no, it's not the literal body of Christ. It's bread. And for that, they died. Sometimes you and I today skip communion because we don't like it because it's a long service. Or we skip communion because we forgot to have a pedicure that week. Or we skip communion because we haven't washed our feet. Or I don't know. We skip it because it's inconvenient. And yet this was a service in the 1500s that people died over the right for you to have a piece of bread and a piece of grape juice and say it's symbolic. We stand on the shoulders of giants, amen? As for that ye call your God, it is a piece of bread. For a more proof thereof, let it lie in the box three minute, three months, and it will be moldy. That's not, isn't, that's not Jesus. It's bread. Her opponents, Fernie Bullet. Now, why did she die? Why did she die? Because she was Protestant. She started preaching around London Protestant. And, and at the time, King Henry VIII is on his sixth wife. Sixth. Divorced, first one. Beheaded, second one. Died, third one. Divorced, fourth one. Beheaded, fifth one. Survived, sixth one. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. So he's on number six. But number six almost dies. We're going to cover number six in a minute because she's an amazing woman. An amazing woman. Catherine Parr, they thought 
They suspected his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, is a Protestant, but she was a very shrewd and a very smart and a very, she, she, she just figured out her husband and she was able to navigate the intricacies of politics. But they thought she's a Protestant, but they didn't know, know quite sure. So they get Anne Askew and they torture Anne Askew trying to get her to confess that the king's sixth wife is a Protestant. And she refuses. They put it on the rack. Does anyone know what a rack is? A rack is a piece of wood. And there's a roll here. And there's a roll here. And on, on, on those rolls of wood, there's ropes tied. And you get laid out and your hands are above your head. And you're laid to a, tied to a rope there. And your feet are tied to a rope there. Then they turn those pieces of wood round. And they turn those pieces of wood round. And as they turn them round, it stretches your arms above your head. And eventually, your elbows, your shoulders, your hips, your knees pop out of joint, your tendons, your muscles are ripped, your ligaments torn. And they do that three times to her. She's stretched. Like, if you're stretched about that much more than you are, what happens to all your bones? They pop out of joint. And every time she's stretched five inches for several hours, she refuses, she refuses to say what they want her to say. She refuses to confess. She refuses to tell tales. She is the ultimate woman who doesn't snitch. Amen? <laughs> no, no. You can stretch me. You can do whatever you want. I'm not, I'm not snitching on anyone. She said this. They put, then they put me on the rack because I confessed no ladies or gentlemen to be of my opinion. The Lord Chancellor and the Master Rich took pains to rack me with their own hands till I was nearly dead. I fainted, and they recovered me again. After that, I sat two long hours arguing with the Lord Chancellor upon the bare floor. She can't sit up. She's out of joint. She's on the bare floor, and he's still arguing, trying to get her to confess about Catherine Parr. With many flattering words, he tried to persuade me to leave my opinion. I said that I would rather die than break my faith. But if not, our God who we serve can deliver us, and we believe he will. But if he chooses not, where, where's God? Where's God? You know that hymn we sing, 606, once to every man a nation? The last verse of that hymn, it says, it says these words. Um, Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch over his own. There are times in your life where God is not in the shadows and God is very visible. And you need him visible because your faith is weak. But there are other times when God is in the shadows. You can't see him and he doesn't answer the prayers that you pray. She's there on the floor. She had to be carried to a place of death on a chair. So she can't stand. She can't walk to a place of death. They have to get a chair and they have to tie her around her back and her legs and her waist to the chair, and then they have to carry the chair with Anne Askew on it, and they carry it to Smithfield. Smithfield in, in, in London, you had two places. You had Smithfield and Tyburn. Smithfield was for heretics, and Tyburn was for traitors. And they carry her to Smithfield. Today, it's still a fish market today. But then just outside the fish market, they've got a, a plaque on the wall. William Wallace was killed there. Braveheart, freedom. But Anne Askew was martyred there. She was carried on a chair and burned at the stake in Smithfield. It was said of her, John 
John Fox said, she was born of such stock and kindred that she might have lived a great wealth and prosperity if she would have rather followed the world than Christ. She was, she was sat on her chair, burned at the stake, and they say that day there was a strong wind. And because there was a strong wind, the flames are kindled, but the flames are just round there. So it just becomes like a roasting session because the flames keep blowing and blowing and blowing and blowing. And rather than die a quick death, because the fire lit quick, she died a slow and a painful death. Because she wouldn't confess who the other Protestants she knew were, and because she wouldn't retract her belief on communion. If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Margaret Wilson is another woman I'd like to cover. Margaret Wilson was a Scotswoman. Anyone here with Scottish blood? There's a few of you. Yeah. There's always a sprinkling of Scotch blood. Margaret Wilson, notice her years. 1666 to six, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's not 1985, it's 1685. She's not that old. It's a terrible edit, eh? You know what? We can just edit that right now. There we go. That's, that's not good. There we go. 1667 to 1685. She was 18 when she died. 18. 18. She was born in Wigtown, Scotland, and she was a Scottish covenanter. Her parents were not. See, at that time, all had to attend the main church. Even though it's Protestant, Presbyterian. Presbyterian is the Church of Scotland. That's where they come from, John Knox. Even though it was Protestant Presbyterian Church of Scotland, they still didn't like competition. In fact, a dominant theme of European religion is we don't like competition. We don't like choice. If we don't like your religion, we're going to set up a new religion, and then guess what? Everyone has to be this religion because we don't like competition. We don't like free will. So all have to attend the main service. Now, those who didn't worship, worship outside, literally outside. You worship under the tree. You worship on the, on the hill. You worship outside. And if you've not been to Scotland, I can assure you, it's not like having outdoor church in California or Hawaii. It's miserable weather there in Scotland. Having an outdoor church in Scotland is not easy. Her and her sister, who was 13 years old, used to go to these outdoor church services. And at the age of 18 and at the age of 13, she and her sister were arrested for attending the illegal churches outside. Her father goes to Edinburgh and petitions for the release of his daughters. And he managed to get Agnes, who was 13, out by virtue of her young age. She's 13 years old and having spiritual convictions different to her parents. You know, the kernel, the essence of the Reformation, the essence of Adventism is this idea. Obviously, you've got the Bible at the bottom. But you've got this idea that not a church council, not a church manual, Not an overreaching authority, but rather the idea at the foundation of my religious experience is my conviction and my conscience guided by the Bible. 
That lies at the base of everything. When Martin Luther stood before the council of worms and said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not do otherwise. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, may God help me. And that same idea stands at the base of all of these people. Her sister is 13. Her father manages to get her out. And it seemed that he was able to get his sister out, but for some reason, it doesn't work. And so Margaret Wilson, along with another lady like Margaret McLachlan, it's a proper Scottish name there, were both condemned to die by drowning. How did they drown them? They were taken to that spot there, and they were tied to a stake and drowned while the tide comes in. It's a part of England, the coast, I'm not sure, you've probably got a place like this in America, where it's a very, it's a, what's the word? I don't know the proper term for it, but like the, the, um, it's very gradual. Like the the beach is not like a beach like that. It's a beach that goes like this. So you could, you could, you could go to the beach and, and the sea literally can be a mile away. And then as the tide comes in, it comes in like very slowly and very gradually. It was one of those kind of places, like where there was a long, wide beach with a very slow, a slow incline. And they were taken there. And what they did, the executioners, they were a little bit smart. Margaret McLachlan was old. She was in her 70s. But Margaret Wilson was 18. They were hoping to break the spirit of Margaret Wilson. So what do they do? They tie Margaret McLachlan further out to the beach than Margaret Wilson. What does that mean? That means Margaret Wilson has to watch Margaret McLachlan die in front of her eyes. Because the tide is going to hit her before it hits her. So she's, she's tied there, Mary, Margaret Wilson, and about 100 meters or 150 meters in front of her is Margaret McLachlan. And as Margaret McLachlan is now, you can imagine you're tied to this post and the tide comes in. And those of you who go, you know, you're going to see and the, and the wave comes in you, and you keep trying to go on your tiptoes and, and the wave comes and then the next wave washes. And then slowly that wave keeps washing higher and higher and higher. And she can see her there just, there just trying, to, trying to keep her nose. There's something about the innate desire. You try and stay alive to your last moment. And Margaret McLachlan is there wrestling around as much as she can tied to the post. And at that moment, they came to Margaret Wilson and they said, Margaret Wilson, what do you see? What do you see? And she looked back at them and she said, I see Christ wrestling now. I see Christ wrestling now. And they asked her, will you recant? Will you renounce your faith? And she said, I will not. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. And she said these words, after your mercy, think on me and for your goodness, great. God good and upright is the way he'll sin show. The meek in judgment, she quoted Psalms. He will guide and make his paths to know. While she watched Margaret McLachlan die is that very moment when they thought she might be spiritually weak to get her to renounce her faith. But she's tied there at the age of 18 with a spiritual conviction that her parents don't share. With her own sister being released and she still, because she was young. And there she stands and dies a lonely and a slow and in many ways a gruesome death. Stake to a post. Today they're buried next to each other in Wigtown, Scotland. The two Margarets. Margaret McLachlan, Margaret Wilson. Two women 
one older, one younger, who both had the conviction to say, I will not, I will not let my life be bigger than my convictions. Today we live in a world where people just have very fluid beliefs, very little backbone, whatever, 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 whatever. The idea that you live for something bigger than yourself and you'll die for something bigger than yourself is, is, a, is, is an idea that is kind of countercultural to society. I want to take you to the country of France and one of my favorite lineage episodes we ever did was on this lady called Marie Durand. Marie Durand. If you go to her house today, you can go there and on the wall is this sign. For those of you who can speak French, A de ma soeur, Marie Durand, prisoner pendant 38 years, ans, is years. A la tour de Constance, gives the years. She, her brother, the top part of the sign says Pierre Durand. Pierre Durand took a call to ministry. Now, what happens today, if, you're, if, you're, if, if, you're, if you're, you have a brother and your family is a deeply spiritual family, we would hope that if your brother takes a call to the ministry, the family will gather around and say, praise the Lord, my brother's going to be a pastor. Now, it might mean he's broke for the rest of his life, but if your family is spiritual, they'll at least have this idea that he's taken a noble call in life. In those days, it was illegal to be a Protestant in France. They called it the church in the desert. It's illegal to be a Protestant. And when Pierre Durand takes a call to the ministry, the whole family is going to suffer. So when the son gathers around the dining table and says, family, I'm going to be a pastor. What he's now saying is, family, we will never have a gathering as family again. Family, some of you will die in prison. Family, you'll be arrested. Family, I will be arrested. My children won't know their father, but I'm taking the call to me. That's all the implications of the brother taking a call to ministry. The mother dies in prison. They can't get him, so we'll get the mother. Can't get him still, we'll get the father. Both the parents die in prison. He was executed himself. Executed for taking a call to ministry. Now, Marie Durand, what happens to her? Eventually, they get her as well. Now, in those days, you couldn't be a single woman. What do I mean by that? Some of you women are single. Nothing wrong with that. And in today's society, you can go to university, and after you finish university, you get a job. And when you get a job, you can go back and live with your parents, or you could rent a house and be a single woman. And you're there as a single woman, renting an apartment, renting a house, or maybe you even buy a house. Some women say you're single and buy a house. You buy a house until... You get married, and then you might sell your house or move in with, you know, whatever. You, know, you couldn't be a single woman in those days. You were either a daughter or a wife. There's no middle ground. You go from being living in your father's house to living in your husband's house. Her father's in prison. She can't go live with her brother. She has to get married. So she marries a guy called Matthew Sayre, Matthew who's 25 years her senior. It probably wasn't a marriage of love. It was more a marriage of convenience, but whatever. What I find interesting is this. When she was arrested and went to prison, 
she doesn't put her married name on the prison register. She's not in prison as Marie Say. She's in prison as Marie Durand. Now, this is not in historical records. I'm just letting my imagination go, so I may be completely wrong. My, my, my guess is this. How do you arrest someone? How do you arrest someone when there's no photo ID? How do you do it? You would come in the house and say, is Marie Durand here? And you're relying on an honor system for Marie, Marie Durand to say, I am she. Now, technically, in a legal sense, is there such a woman as Marie Durand? No, because she changed her name. She's Marie Serre. So if she wanted to be white as a serpent and harmless as a dove and a little bit sneaky, she could have said, she's not here. You understand what I'm saying? But when they come in, and this is just my imagination going because there's no photo ID. When they come in and they say, is Marie Durand here? You can imagine a husband looking across the table at her saying, don't say anything. Don't say anything. And she looks up and she says, I am she. I'm Marie Durand. Condemning herself to prison and <laughs> the man who took her in. Poor chap. He goes to prison too. She's arrested and she's sent to the, um, so her husband's arrested as well, he goes there. She's sent to the Tour de Constance. Whilst in prison, she wrote lots of letters trying to improve the lives of the other prisoners there, and she became a pillar of support to them. Now, this is the Tour de Constance. There. Beautiful little building. You go there today, take pictures. Oh, lovely. They have a nice holiday in the south of France. She was in this tower, which is separated from everything else by a little moat. She was in this room. See the nice atmospheric lighting? So we can go there and take our Instagram pictures. She was in this room. Not for one year, not for two years, not for three, not for four, not for five. You see, the courage of faith and the heroes of martyrs, or I forget exactly how that quotation from Ellen White goes. We look at Anne Askew. She died at the age of 27. We look at Margaret Wilson. She dies at the age of 18. Women who had faith to death. Marie Durand's faith, though, is slightly different because she goes to prison at the age of 19. She goes at the age of 19, and she stays in prison all of her 20s. Every week, a priest would come and give them the opportunity to recant and renounce their faith. And every week, she says, nope. Not today, priest. She was in that room for all of her 20s, all of her 30s, all of her 40s. She's in this room for 38 years, simply because she was Protestant and her brother took a call to the ministry. What is it like to live for an idea bigger than you? She's living for an idea that's bigger than her. If you're challenged by your, by your convictions, and your convenience. What do we go with? Conviction or convenience? There's no convenience living in that room. Never leaving that room for 38 years. Where's the showers? Where's the toilet? The toilet was a bucket. A bucket. And with her, with about 30 of the women in that room, toilet in a bucket. So where did I get rid of the bucket? See that hole there? Pour it down. Guess where the food is? Gets thrown up through. Same hole. Food comes up. Food goes back down. 
38 years. Cold. The south of France is beautiful in the summer, but it gets bitterly cold in the winter. So they go from hot, humid, smelly summers to cold, frigid winters. Around the top of that hole is these words. You can't see it too clearly. The resolution's not great, but they've kind of protected it with a glass cover, and you can see kind of clearly a little bit. There's the word register. R-E-G-I-S-T-E-Z, or you say Z. Register, which is the old French word for the modern French word, résister, which is the French word for the English word, resist. And they believe that Marie Durand scratched these letters into that, the, 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 the rim of that refuse hole saying, resist, resist. So the sign that's by her house ends with the words. The bottom there. Si mon saveur veut m'appelle à signer de mon sang, son saint évangile, sa volonté, son fait. Which means, if my savior calls me to sign his holy gospel with his blood, his will be done. If my savior calls me to sign his holy gospel with my blood, his will be done. Be done. Marie Durand was not a theologian. Marie Durand was not a pastor. Marie Durand was not a professor. Marie Durand was simply an 18, 19-year-old girl whose brother took a call to be a pastor. And she bore the consequence of her brother's call to the ministry for 38 years in prison. Faithfully, she lived 19 years before prison, 38 years in prison, and then she dies eight years after she comes out of prison. Like her 20s. Some say they're the best decade of your life. She lives in prison. Her 30s, the new 20s, she lives in prison. Her 40s, the new 30s, she lives in prison. And she's let out of prison at the age of 56. She dies when she's 64. She dies when she's 64. If I have seen further than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of what? Giants. We stand on the shoulders of these women, ladies and men. But ladies know there's some serious women in our spiritual heritage that lived by convictions, deep, deep conviction, independent of their family under stress and pain and duress. Catherine Powell, we come back to her. We come back to her because we covered her under Anne Askew. Remember, Anne Askew dies because one of the things they want Anne Askew to do is to say that Catherine Powell is a Protestant, but she refuses to do so. She's racked three times, stretched five, six inches, all of her bones out of socket and out of joint. She's burned at the stake because she refuses to confess that this woman is a Protestant. You know the text in Esther that says, you may have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. I believe Catherine Parr, who, has anyone heard of Catherine Parr? See your hands. Just have a, some, one, two, three, few of you. Just to see where we're going from. Okay, so here's King Henry VIII. There's his six wives. And you can see by how handsome he is in the middle that women were falling over themselves to marry him. Just falling over. So he has six wives. Catherine of Aragon, and that was the one he's married to the longest. 
But she doesn't give him a son. Because in those days, daughters can't be whatever, so he wants a son. Now, he wants to divorce her, but the Pope won't let him divorce her. Pope won't let him divorce her. But he needs to divorce her because he just wants to divorce her. He wants a son. Pope won't let him divorce her because Pope and the King of France, or Spain it was, I believe, you know, there's, he doesn't want to embarrass. But he eventually divorces her and starts a new church. So he starts a new church so he can divorce her. That's where we get the Church of England from. So then he marries Anne Boylan. He's married to her for three years, and then he kills her. Imagine going through all of that heartache and pain to marry a woman that you kill three years later. Then he marries Jane Seymour. He loves her. He says that was the only woman he truly loved. She bore him a son. That's probably why he loved her. Then he marries Anne of Cleves. He divorces her. She's smart enough not to get her head chopped off. Then Catherine Howard. He kills her. She has an affair on him, or two, or three. And you don't have an affair on King Henry VIII. Then he marries Catherine Parr. He kind of like Catherine's. He's married to her for four years. And she's widowed. Now, there's his six wives. These are the ones that gave him children, the first three. The first three give him children. The first one, Catherine of Aragon's daughter, is Mary I, who goes on to be bloody Queen Mary. And now we have a drink named after her. Then we have Anne Boylan, and from Anne Boylan we get Elizabeth I, who, lived, who reigned in England for about 40, 44 years and was a great queen. They've made movies about her today. Then Jane Seymour gave him his only son, Edward VI. Okay, now here's, here's how it goes. So none of them are kings yet, or queens. When he marries Catherine Parr, she's in her early 30s when he marries her. Catherine Parr herself... Um, was 36 years, died, died at the age of 36. She had four husbands, interestingly. Her first husband was the age of 17 to 21, and he dies. Second husband, the age of 22 to 31. The third husband is the ages of 31 to 35. That was King Henry VIII. He dies. And the fourth husband was the age of 35 to 36, and then she dies, I think, in childbirth, if I'm correct. So her third marriage was to King Henry VIII. Catherine Parr was an educated woman. She wrote about three books which was rare in those days for women to write. Her, she was the first queen to publish a book in her own name. So she's revolutionary. She writes a book. She doesn't use a ghostwriter. She doesn't use, use a pseudonym. She publishes the book in her name. She's educated. Prayers and meditations and, lamenta and the lamentations of a sinner. Now, at the time she becomes queen, she's 31, and King Henry VIII has these children. He has Mary I, who's 27. She's only four years younger than her. If you're 31 and your stepdaughter, quote-unquote, is 27, you have very little influence on your stepdaughter who's four years younger than you. You understand? You're, you're contemporaries. But she did do something kind to her because when, she, when her mother got divorced, she was exiled from the royal family. She brought her back in. She brings her back in. She gives her status again. Elizabeth I is 12 years old and Edward was seven. Have you ever heard the phrase... If life gives you lemons, then what? Make lemonade. You're 31 years old. You don't marry King Henry VIII because you fell in love with him. You marry King Henry VIII because he was at some ball or some dance or some gathering, and he sees you across the room and thinks, hmm, she'll be my next wife. 
That's how you get married. There's no love. She's 31. He's in his late 50s. He's an old fat man. And she's 31. He's sick. He's not well. He basically married her to nurse him in his old age. And she's got three stepkids. A 27-year-old who's a staunch Catholic, a 12-year-old, and a 7-year-old. So what does she do? She actually was Protestant, Catherine Parr, and she's got three stepkids. What does she do? She can't influence Mary. Mary's a staunch Catholic. But she takes upon it herself over the four years she's queen to influence Elizabeth, who's 12, and Edward, who's 7. She gets the best Protestant teachers to come to the royal palace and teach her stepchildren. Today, you go to Netflix or Blockbuster or wherever, and Blockbuster's dead, you know, whatever. You go to those places. You can rent movies, watch movies about Elizabeth, the golden era. That's the Elizabeth. That's the Elizabeth here, Elizabeth I. So she gets the best teachers to teach Elizabeth. She's a personal tutor herself to Elizabeth and Edward, but then she gets other people, like she gets Hugh Latimer, she gets Thomas Cranmer, she gets these great Protestant leaders to come to the royal palaces and teach her stepchildren. So while she herself probably doesn't love King Henry VIII, while she herself is married by a marriage of convenience to the king, not to her, while she herself is married to this king, she makes the best of a bad situation and she teaches the stepchildren that she's given but she, does, she teaches them in a way where she ensures that the future of England becomes Protestant, not Catholic. Edward would reign from 1547. So he's the next king after Henry. You have Henry, Catholic, then quasi-Protestant. He dies, Edward takes the throne at the age of nine or ten or whatever it was. He takes the throne. In between Edward, we, we, we would have Mary I, the Protestant, sorry, the Catholic Queen, bloody Queen Mary. So she does her best to turn England back to being a Catholic country. She kills about 280 Protestant leaders, but she dies, and then Elizabeth takes over. Somehow, for some reason, history doesn't know, she doesn't execute her sister. She doesn't, and her, her advisors wanted her to execute her sister, but she doesn't. She's not, she's not my half-sister, I can't do that. And Elizabeth would reign from 1558 to 1603, ensuring that England was a Protestant country. She was the Virgin Queen, allegedly. She reigned during a time of great stability. She led England during the attack from the Spanish Armada in 1588, and she really helped establish Protestantism in England. She gets the glory today, and rightly so. She was a great queen. But in many ways, Catherine Parr, her stepmother, made a significant contribution to English history by educating her as her stepmother when she's dumped, lumped, sorry, with marrying King Henry VIII. Your life may not be whatever you want it to be, but you can make it better than what it is by taking the lemons and making a bit of lemonade. If I've seen further than others, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. The last woman I want to mention is a woman by the name of Katharina von Bora. You may have heard of her. A few, a few more of you may have heard of her. That was her maiden name. Her married name would have been Katharina von Bora Luther. Why that? 
because she marries Martin Luther. She was born in 1499 to an impoverished family. At the age of, what, five, she goes to a convent school. At the age of eight, nine, she goes to a convent in Nimshen. And in 1515, at the age of 16, she takes her vows and becomes a nun. What a life. At 16, she signed her life away to be a nun for the rest of her life. That was a time of great religious um, upheaval and instability. And in 1522, seven years later, seven years, I, I love this story. How many of you are familiar, just by a show of hands, with how Martin Luther marries his wife? There's a sprinkling of you. Okay. It's a fascinating story. So Martin Luther is a priest still. He hasn't started the Lutheran church. This is scandalous. Scandalous. And there's a group of nuns who want to escape from the nunnery. Whoops, went backwards. So in 1523, sorry, she escapes from the convent in what can only be described as a smelly fish barrel. Because there's no such thing as a non-smelly fish barrel. In a fish barrel, she's hunched down, hunched up, knees against her chin, stuffed into a fish barrel, along with, I think it was about five or six other nuns. So you got about six nuns. They want to escape from being a nun. I don't want to be a nun anymore. Now, during that time period, as I mentioned, you can't be a single woman. Can't be a single woman. You can't come out the nun and be like, hey, it's going to go be an accountant. No. You're a wife, a nun, or a daughter. Now, they were nuns, and they've left nunnery, but you can't go back to home. Why? Because your family is going to be ashamed and disgraced by you escaping from the nunnery. You can't go back, hey, Dad, I'm home now. Oh, so glad to have you home. Let's kill the fatted calf and make a feast for you. No, 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 no. You basically have to live with your escaped nuns together in a house while Martin Luther does his best to marry you off to other people. And he married the first five of these nuns off. And then Katerina, he tries to marry to a much older man. And she says, no chance. I'm not marrying him. He's too old for me. And then she looks at Martin Luther and she says, you're single. You need to marry me. And he says, yes, dear. <laughs> I don't know exactly what he said. I'm just, I'm just uh, doing a little bit of a narrative on history. He says, yes, and he agrees to marry her. So I don't know if it actually happened like that, but I, li I like to think it did, and I like to think she proposed to him. She essentially did, because she says, you're not married, I'm not married, I'm not marrying that old guy, you need to marry me. She so says, okay, I'm single, you're single. What hindrance us? <laughs> and so Martin Luther, who's a former priest, and Katerina, who's a former nun, get married. Now, it's a scandal. Priests are supposed to be celibate. Nuns are supposed to be celibate. She escapes. He marries a woman that he escaped from the nunnery in a fish barrel. This is a scandal of no small magnitude. Forget your local church scandals that you guys have where whatever happens in your church, I don't know. Imagine this. It's drama. So he marries her. Why is she significant? She, she's not a martyr. She's not a martyr. She doesn't die but she breaks all social protocols. In many ways, she is what we would call today the first pastor's wife. 
Because think about it, there's no pastor's wives before her because all the pastors or the priests have been single. Martin Luther is the first one who gets married, breaking that custom. He then gets a wife who's from a nunnery, and she is now the first pastor's wife in modern spiritual history. She was 16 years younger than him, and together they had six children. She was a very strong woman. She ran the household, including the finances, which would have been very rare in those days for a woman to run the finances. She runs the finances of the Luther household, and she looked after her sister's six children as well. So she has her six kids, she has her six or six kids, and various students would stay with them. They, 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 they're a house that would be even big by today's standards. But she would tend to the practical matters of the house. She ran the family farm, she ran the farm and the garden. She supervised the serpents. We're not, uh, we're not condoning the next part. She operated a brewery that was financially successful. Martin Luther did like to drink. And she enabled Martin Luther to focus on his writing, his preaching, his lecturing, and setting up the Lutheran church. But she wasn't just the good housewife in the background. She was a great source of um, counsel or wisdom to him as well. And she wasn't a doormat wife. She was a strong woman. You can tell by the way they got together, she was strong. You're single, I'm single, let's get married. She runs the finances of the home. She's a very influential woman. And Martin Luther said, there is no more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship to communion or company than a good marriage. And we believe that Martin Luther had a good marriage, happy marriage. And his marriage was probably a great source of strength for the Reformation and the founding of the Lutheran Church than if he had stayed single. Their marriage was pioneering. And in many ways, it set the tone for how pastoral couples would interact and engage and operate in this new religious world. Later on, Zwingli would have a wife. And then, then it became more commonplace for pastors to have wives. But Luther was the one who broke the mold. And Katharina von Bora was the pioneering woman to being a pastor's wife, a spiritual leader in their homes. If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. These women that we've looked at in this presentation, I don't think any of them have statues. You can find plenty of statues of Martin Luther, but I don't think there's many or any of his wife. Margaret Wilson, she gets a tombstone. Marie Durand, she gets a plaque. Anne Askew, no plaque, no tombstone. Perpetua, nothing much. But yet their convictions and their stands have laid the framework and the fabric for the Christian faith that you and I hold today. And as we look back and as we look forward, we're not just looking back at men. We're looking back at some strong women as well who lived by that basic principle that I'm living for an idea that's bigger than my life. My conscience is captive to God's word. I would encourage all of you here today to know what that idea is and live for an idea that's bigger than yourself. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to cast our minds back, to be encouraged by the stories of the past. As we see these women that have walked before us, 
that had independent minds and strength of convictions, may it encourage us today that we can break whatever generational cycles and convictions our families may have, that we can stand by ourselves, and that whether our parents or our siblings share our convictions or not, it should not matter, and that we can stand for you no matter what. No matter what. Bless us to this end, we pray in Christ's name. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioverse, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.